it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. Let me take you back to something you mentioned, Paul, because I'm sure our listeners had their interest peaked when you talked about career influences. You, you mentioned a couple, Crenshaw, Trevino with the with the shut face thing. Tell us a little bit more about what you're talking about. Uh, just give us a couple of examples of those influences. Well, uh, around the greens, you know, I played with Crenshaw and Seve after I lost the British Open in 87. And we played at PJ National, and there was no first cut of rough in 1987 down there. It was either fairway or three inches. And every fairway I missed, I made, I missed the green. And every green I missed, I made bogey or double. I didn't get one up and down. I double chipped. It was a disaster. And and I'm playing with Seve and Crenshaw, the two greatest short game artists I'd ever seen. And I, I, I'd kind of, I hadn't given up, but I was in the eighties both days. And I think, and I remember just with arms folded watching Crenshaw and thinking, there's no way I can get this up and down. I don't know how to do it. And he pitched it in there, gimme. And then Savvy would get in a spot. And I had my arms folded over there thinking, no way. I don't think I know how to get that up and down. I swear to God, this was in 1987 now. And I, <laughs> you know who helped me first off was Dennis Watson. I saw him a couple weeks later. And he, I had a ping sandwich, the one I hold all the bunker shots with. Right. And I kept it in the bag, but I added an, a 60 degree, a 59 degree, after being with Dennis Watson at Hilton Head chipping around. And um, turns out that, the club I hold all those bunker shots with had about 55 degrees of loss. Which is astounding, and he really. Said, he said to me, there's no way in hell you're going to be able to hit a decent chip shot. You, you you got not enough loft. He said, this is the worst sandwich I've ever seen. <laughs> and I didn't know. And we're talking about, you know, later in your career, 87, I was the player of the year in 1987. And I didn't know how to, and I had a 55 degree sandwich. Think about that, oh, Bruce. Yeah, that's, wow. So, amazing yeah i learned so dennis watson got he flipped me into getting the 60 degree wedge which i did and uh crenshaw one knee on on my bag smoking a cigarette watched me chip and pitch for two hours one day him and redmond and he changed my life and then trevino the same thing um back in colonial early on trevino taught me stuff about how to curve the ball when not to do this you know it's just invaluable stuff invaluable stuff hale Irwin, raymond floyd andy bean helped me so much it's incredible and i had my andy bean technique you know i think i was halfway decent at trying to imitate what i thought they looked like Mm -hmm. and being able to produce a result that they were getting crenshaw taught me how to hit a pitch to where you could read the logo on the ball and it's on perfectly straight not that side spinny thing he taught me how to pitch it where you could read the logo on the ball Holy cow. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. I remember our talk with Tom Watson, and he talked about the same thing, about trying to get better with chipping and pitching. And he said at some point, I don't know where he picked it up, but he had he had somebody sort of cutting across the ball, right? Cutting across the ball. He tried that a few times, and he said, boom. From that moment on, I just felt like I could chip everything in. I remember Watson did a little commercial and talked about his right knee moving forward. And um, that was in 1988. And that's, I remember thinking every chip shot to make sure my right knee went forward as I pitched the ball out of this Bermuda rough at the PGA championship. Uh, and I ended up losing to Sluman that year oh, yeah. when he shot 65 on Sunday, but I was thinking about Watson <laughs> and what Watson said. <laughs> so, you know, the influences 
are incredible, aren't they? They are. The things really. that we latch onto. Yeah, let's uh, let's go back to life on the road. Then we'll recap your your record a little bit. But uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the uh, the motorhome. Was that the nineteen eighty three Vogue? It was. It was. It was a nineteen seventy seven Vogue or a nineteen. But we bought it in eighty three. It wasn't brand uh-huh. new. So if it was in the book, it was written wrong. Um, but it was a Vogue mini motorhome and today enthusiasts, they don't, they've never even heard of that brand. I don't know what happened to it, but we loved it. We had a cat named Cleo that we bought in, uh, at the BC open at the mall in Binghamton. Uh, you remember that? (laughs) We bought a cat named Cleo and that cat lived with us in the motorhome for four years, played the mini tours and lived in Orlando and really the Sheridan twin towers parking lot and uh, played the JC Goosey mini tours. They were great times. I remember one time up at, we were on the turnpike up in New Jersey or New York somewhere. And we got on the turnpike and we're cruising along and get to the toll booth and the motorhome doesn't fit in the toll booth. And uh, we had missed the sign. I, w- I was driving, missed the sign where we weren't allowed on there. Yeah. There's no way to go, but backwards. So I was on the <laughs> shoulder and went backwards in this motorhome, looking in my mirror for a couple miles before I got back to the exit. One of the scariest things ever. We had all kinds of stuff happen. My wife was driving at one time, leaving Doral, went through the toll booth and it didn't fit and just ripped the awning right off the side of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a great time, though. Great times of our life. We're living in that camper. and uh, But we finally, when she started, when she got pregnant with Sarah Jean, our, our first daughter, she had her in December of 85. We finally got out of there. I got a deal, uh, and we lived in a villa in Bradenton, a parish, a town called Parish at River Wilderness. And I wore this logo on my hat for five years for 25000 bucks a year. And at the time, I probably could have been getting about two or 300000 a year. But I had signed this five-year deal, and I was trapped. So I just, I just did it. <laughs> yeah. Days on the road, Curtis Strange uh, tells us that uh, his budget, he and Sarah's budget for hotels back in the day was $18 a night. Yeah. Well, Curtis had a reputation for having short arms, <laughs> deep pockets. <laughs> deep pockets and short arms. <laughs> Those alligator, alligator arms huh? at the, at the dinner table. That's right. But uh, I'll tell you this in at the Houston <laughs> open in 1984, my wife and I stayed at a, motel six and it was but at the time i think they were motel 12s remember they went up to like 12.99 (laughs) and you still had to pay like three dollars to get the key to the television but when uh, i opened the door the next morning to go to the course i couldn't open the door and i looked over the air conditioner out the window and there was a dude laying there um, blocking the door and he was dead or passed out. I didn't know. I, so I called the front desk. I said, there's a dead man stretched across my front door. <laughs> and they, it was just a homeless guy. We were right in a homeless area and it was a homeless guy just passed out drunk. I couldn't open the door. So that, that was, you know, I remember, I remember we had some hairy situations on our tour places that we stayed back in the day. Scott and Sally Hoke were actually tied up and robbed in their hotel. Oh my. Uh, an incredible story and uh, Scott never talks about it, but what a horrifying thing for both of them. And we always, we stayed in places we shouldn't have been. I think a lot of us, 
the tour didn't help that much with accommodations. And if you didn't know what you were doing back then, you could have ended up in a scary spot. Well, I did it at Riviera my rookie year. I flew out to L.A. and landed at 11 o'clock at night. I had a couple hundred dollars with me and was had to qualify at L.A. North for the Riviera tournament. And I went out of that place right past Nude, 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 right into Englewood, into the worst section. But I went into L.A. and and I couldn't get in a hotel room because no one would break a hundred dollar bill. And so I went into a 7-Eleven and I walked in there and there was an empty cash drawer on the counter. And this guy came out white as a sheet. Somebody had just put a gun to his head and I he must have walked out as I pulled in. There's so many little things, you know, back then. We stayed in some scary spots in the early 80s. Uh, Sarah Strange, one time she walks into a room. This is a room with red uh, shag carpeting, crushed velour pillows. And I don't know if it was the maid or somebody approaches her in the room and says, young lady, does your mother know who you, where you are? I believe it. And she says, what, what, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I just talked to her. And it turns out, uh, as, as Curtis said, this place, was, this place was rented by the hour. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> there was a lot of those. And he was probably at the golf course, you know. You know, we were all, it's a naive generation that came out in the 70s and 80s. You know, the internet now, it's, I, I mean, you almost wish for some naivety for the young folks. Now everybody knows everything. Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? So who'd you travel with back then? Did you have some friends that you would try to travel with on a, a either a Friday night or a Sunday night or a Monday morning? Or No, my wife traveled with me every week until the kids got to school age. She homeschooled for a while. And uh, I never hung. I roomed with Ronnie Black one time pretty much and didn't really like being rooming with anybody. I didn't want to hear their round. I didn't want to tell them mine. And that was kind of, I just never did it. Yeah. I had plenty of friends, though. Don't get me wrong. We all hung out. But I never traveled with anybody. But on the road, practice rounds, you know, I played a lot with Kalkovecki and Ken Green, and I played a lot of practice rounds with Raymond and Lanny. Um, you know, you want to play with players. A little money, you know, though. Oh, my God. That was all money games. Play for all, all money, money games. games. Boy. That's, but that's good, isn't it? Absolutely. That's the way to do it. Something on the line. That's what Mickelson does every Tuesday, and he's dragging these guys in there, and, you know, he might – he might get fleeced once in a while, but I really believe Mickelson's trying to instill something in, in these younger guys. I like it. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's, uh, let's recap your, your, your record, uh, briefly for our listeners, uh, 
for Paul Azinger in his professional day. 16 professional wins, including 12 PGA Tour victories, uh, two wins on the European Tour, uh, the 1990 and 1992 BMW International Open, both in playoffs, by the way. Uh, highest world yeah. ranking fourth in 1993. And Paul spent nearly 300 weeks in the top 10 on the tour. That's a pretty good record right there. Well, world rankings when we were playing was a, it was owned by IMG at the time. And, uh, yeah. when I was fourth, you know, I mean, I should have been one. I wasn't maybe the best player, but I was damn sure the hottest player. I had 11 top threes in 10 months and I'd won four tournaments the tour championship at Pinehurst Jack's tournament and the PGA. And I went from like seventh to fourth in the world rank. I mean, yeah. a few years ago, Luke Donald won five tournaments in five years and was number one in the world. I'm like, I won four tournaments in 11 months and the three biggest. And it was just a terrible system. I would love to have been able to say, Oh yeah, I was number one on the world rankings, but I look at it now like the world rankings really only recently, probably within the last 10 or 15 years, has been worth a darn. And um, Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, when I wasted my time on the Player Advisory Council on tour, I think the one argument that I always tried to make was that the world ranking was IMG. Why are we starting to use it to exempt players into fields? And I hated that. I said players should know on their own, based on their own merit how they got in not based on some world ranking system that, you know, if you take three weeks off, you move up. And if you finish third in a week, you move back because you finished second the year before. It was a terrible system. It probably still has flaws for the guys on the bubble. I'm sure they don't like it either, but uh, it's better than it was. It's probably pretty accurate now. It's hard to argue really anybody on that world ranking that shouldn't be there, but I could have been, I could have been up there. I could have been a little higher than that. We all think that way, you know, but it's okay. It's one of those things. Let, let me let me guess. You weren't represented by Mark McCormick. <laughs> no, I wasn't IMG. And if you weren't, you weren't going to be there. You just weren't going to ever be number one. And that's fine. That was the way it worked. And it was really, in the end, it was very, what a visionary he must have been to uh, see the light, see Arnold and Jack is the way they would be. And, you know, I think for, for them to create that world ranking is just a stroke of genius. Well, uh, the devil was in that stable early on too. So it was the, the big three and oh, the gosh. devil playing a lot of exhibitions back in the early sixties. Yeah. Well, and, uh, we also had, uh, Bob Charles and, uh, who else was in Casper? Casper was in there for a while. Yeah. Orville was, Moody? I mean, did you ever get my, Orville from, Uh, I don't know. Cause I, I, I wasn't in there very long. I had a, uh, I had a sort of a falling out with uh, with the group, uh, which I probably don't need to go into. But uh, uh, the early part of my career with with IMG was great because I played a lot of exhibitions with Arnold and Jack, and uh, I mean, I mean that was that was that in itself was worth it, you know. I oh yeah, fly into Latrobe and and play five exhibitions during the week, week with Arnold and live with him was was you know I mean that was. Reading, reading about those guys when I was a kid in Australia, and then have the chance to, because uh, I, I, I've known Jack since the nineteen since nineteen sixty, when we both wow. played in the amateur, and uh, so you know that was, uh, I mean, how many chances do you get like that, you know? 
Well, you know, and then you got Dow Finsterwall and, and Rossberg back then, those guys you got to play with. You had to play with some greats. Uh, the guys that when I got on tour, you know, there was no champions tour, no senior tour. So I ran into those guys still Sneed would still play. So it was really cool. Now they jump ship by the time they turn 50, they're out of there. And, uh, I think it's a kind of the tour lost a little bit of its charm when that champions tour showed up. I think the, uh, I played quite a bit with, with Sneed as well. And, uh, uh, I've had a lot of nicknames, but uh, he had a special nickname for me. He never called me Bruce. He never called me Devil. Uh, he used to say, Rui, okay, Rui, you got to turn in the barrel. Turn in the barrel, Rui. <laughs> Percy <laughs> Boomer, baby. <laughs> that's what he told you. Yeah, that's what he told me. Yeah, Rui, turn in the barrel. That's what Redman taught me. Turn Did in he? the barrel. Is that yes, right? Yes, sir. Isn't that, isn't Absolutely. That yeah. And Sneed, Sneed taught Redman. I said that at the beginning yeah, of this you thing. Did. Sneed really taught Redman, yeah. And uh, it was turning turning a barrel. And uh, Sneed watched me hit balls a lot. And Byron Nelson watched me hit a lot of balls. You know who I hit a lot of balls in front of is Mo Norman. Hmm. Uh, that was oh. quite a sight to behold, to watch Mo Norman Boy, yeah. hit balls. What a, what a ball striker he was. Wow. A little strange. Our generation, I think... We all wanted to be great ball strikers, didn't we? Yeah. That, that was kind of what you prided yourself in, like yeah. ball striking. And yeah. It didn't mean jack. All that, all that matters is if you could score. Yeah, right. <laughs> put, that, put that number on the card. That's all that matters. All right. Wasn't Mo a bit of a savant? Well, I think he, yeah, he had some issues there. But Mo was, I met Mo when I was 18 years old and watched him hit on Redmond's range. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, he, he said, oh, he said about me, he loved my swing. He says, everyone swings around the course. You swing through it because of my finish. I would finish out in front. He'd have loved like a Tommy Fleetwood style or that tiger pinch shot, you know, the stinger he hits. And that's how Mo says, everyone swings around the, the course. I swing through it. So he was straight up, straight at the target, and, you know, right hand in the right hip pocket. He had, you know, used to have blood on his ankle when he was a kid on the inside of his right ankle. You know, if you haven't ever watched Mo Norman hit, you should. It's the real deal. And Trevino's the real deal. Any footage or anything you can hear from Trevino, you got to take it in. Yeah, yeah. Well, rank, ball striking ranking. For me, it was Hogan one, Trevino two. Ball there you control. go. Hogan Trevino. That's what I think. Hogan Trevino. Yeah, I I think. Yeah, for me, I, I didn't catch. You know, I mean, Trevino was just something that was to you just could listen to it, and then he would chatter his way around. He'd crawl in. He looked like he was in a different spot every time. But it was a sight to behold, really. I miss Jack in his prime and wise coffin, some of those guys. But uh, I think for us, for me, watching like Ian Woosnam hit balls or Jose Maria hit balls or even Ballesteros hit balls was a sight to behold. Baldo never impressed me, but he had great distance control. and, and But he never hit a shot that would like blow you away. 
Greg Norman was the best driver of the ball I've ever seen in my life by yeah. a mile. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably was an underachiever because he wasn't the best wedge player, maybe. Um, but what a driver of the golf ball. I, I felt like Nick Price probably hit as many good shots as I've ever seen in my life. You know, I'm naming off so many international players, right? I'm not naming a lot of American golfers that that blew me away. But uh, Tiger did. Yeah, boy. I remember hit, picking up my balls one time. I was hitting balls on the range at Muirfield Village. I wasn't playing well. It was about 98 or 9, 90, probably 98, 99 maybe. And I listened to Tiger hit a few nine irons, and I, I watched it. And then I just said to my caddy, I said, let's, let's, let's go over there. <laughs> so what's the matter? I said, that just is hurting my confidence. Because <laughs> 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 it, it was better. It was just something better about it. I didn't, you know, the ball went out, you know, he had the Nike logo. It went out like that Nike swoosh, didn't it? Like a check mark. Yeah. yeah. And then it came down like that. <sighs> Spectacular. So. Uh, that blew me away. He wasn't the most accurate player, but, but there was, you can say what you want. Tiger didn't hit it great. He, he led greens in regulation every year. He didn't drive it great, buddy. If he needed to hit the fairway on a par five that was reachable, it was in that fairway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had that same thing happen to me with the name. I'm not sure that you would remember it, but there was, used to be a guy on the tour by the name of Paul Bonderson. Do you remember his name? I don't. He, uh, he could hit. Uh, he could hit it so good. Never, you know, never really had a great career. Uh, but I wouldn't practice next to him. It was intimidating, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's certain guys that are like that. You know, Chad Campbell hit it that that way. Guys that you know just weren't dominant superstars that were great. There were so many of them that that hit it just ridiculous. But they didn't have that short game or whatever that magic intangible is that we all want to put our finger on there's just something uh that these guys will have a gift that can score and they put that ball striking together with with that nick price was unbelievable as i mentioned him trying to think of top americans freddie i don't think freddie couples ever missed a sweet spot to tell you the truth uh he's a lot like watson you know watson Watson didn't always hit it where he was looking but Damn sure it was solid. solid. Yeah, it sure was. I asked Bruce uh, Edwards one time, you know, not to trash Greg Norman, it's not the point, but to kind of prop up how great Watson was. You know, if, if, uh, I said, what was the difference, you know, because he caddied for both of them. Both of them. What was the difference between those two guys? He had already gone back to Watson at this point, and he left mad at Greg, so, but he said, you know, he said the difference in those two guys, he said, if, if Greg hit it in a divot, he'd say, I'm the unluckiest guy out here. And he said, if Watson hit it in a divot, he'd grab the club and say, watch this, Bruce. So like, All uh-huh. right, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And, that, you know, it's it's attitude, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it, is. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, something, Tom, uh, who, who told us the story, Bruce, uh, about Watson uh, and what somebody learned from Watson in a bunker. He said, uh, there's, there's three things that can happen when you get in a bunker and they're all good. He said, you can hit a bad bunker shot and make the putt, save the par. And he said, you can hit a great bunker shot and tap it in for par, or you can hold it. Yeah. I've, I've heard him say that before. I can't remember who uh, it was. It only, I, I, I don't know. I remember Watson saying, it only takes one good shot a hole to make a par. 
Bad drive, good second. Yeah. Bad second, good chip. Yeah. Bad chip, good yeah. putt. Yeah. One good shot of hole, make yeah. a par. Yeah. You talk about players that had an impact on you. Bruce, uh, uh, Billy Casper had an impact on you at one point, didn't he? Oh, uh, he, yeah. I'll tell Zing that story. I, I played the, uh, back, back in the day when you played 36 holes on Saturday, uh, I was playing the Western Open, paired last, last pairing with Billy Casper. And I watched 36 holes of some of the greatest ball striking you've ever seen. I went back to the motel on the, that night and I said to Gloria, my wife, I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm in the right game. <laughs> he was, uh, he was a great player. I guess you probably didn't get to see much of him, did you, Zing? No, I miss Billy Casper. Unfortunately, I got to know him pretty well. I really liked him, but I never got to really watch Billy Casper sit there and beat balls. Um, I got, you know, who I got to watch hit balls was Orville Moody and, uh, he blew me away. Yeah, he's a good guy named Dale Douglas was better than I thought, yeah. you know, I, and then he got out on a senior tour, won the U S uh, senior open. Um, double D just, I got to, I played with wise cough, you know, those guys, it was such a different sport in the, just the way of thinking and how players, you know, they held stuff tight to the vest. You know, it was hard to get great information from guys unless you really knew them well. Um, Nowadays it's like nobody wants to make anybody mad. I think that's why Brooks and Bryson having a feud is interesting because these guys are all so busy brand building. Nobody wants to look like a jerk. Uh, It's just different. Do you think the $40 million bonus deal for the players has anything to do with that? Probably. It really irritates me. You know, um, the tour was going to have first place be $25 million at the tour championship. And um, for some reason, they backed it back. They they kept it at 15 So what are we going to do with this extra $10 million? You know, I mean, I know we're on a podcast and everything, and I, I could go straight to Jay Monahan because I know him well enough. But, you know, those, I wish that $10 million w- would help somebody like Ed Fiore, who just had his heart transplanted Absolutely. you know he, he could use it he beat tiger down the stretch when tiger first got on tour at quad cities yeah. um guys like there's a lot of guys that if you really dug back that are still alive that could you could you get those 10 guys or eight guys you're going to give 10 million to and say hey look here's what we decided we might want to do with this and i guarantee every one of those guys like go for yeah. it Amen. i don't need the money um but they don't, they're not thinking like that. I don't, I don't, you know, who's building the bro- player's brand to the broadcasters. You know, are we supposed to walk down the range with our pocket open saying, Hey, I can say something nice about yeah. you or bad about you. <laughs> I can build your brand or destroy yeah. your brand. I, it's, I think it has, uh, there's be un- unintended consequences probably maybe not, but yeah. it could be, the money could be used more wisely than just dumping it to the top eight guys that self promote the best. Yeah. Tiger's yeah. going to be the number one draw. Why don't exactly. give him all the money? Just give, give it to Arnold's foundation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, uh, some of your wins on PGA Tour. Obviously, the, the big one, which we'll get to uh, at some point, is uh, is your 1993 win at uh, Inverness in the PGA Championship. But uh, uh, you you mentioned earlier your, your first win at, at Phoenix uh, – which is a great tournament run by a, a philanthropic organization called the Thunderbirds. Uh, this is played at the stadium course at TPC Scottsdale. Your first win was by one over Hal Sutton. 
Yep, it was. And I uh, thank my caddy, Billy Poor, for that one. I think all my wins were, I think I might have had three or four wins that were more than one shot. But when you win by one, you had you had some help. So uh, <laughs> that was important. I remember holding a bun- or hitting a great bunker shot on the, on the 16th hole and making about a 15 or 18 footer. Um, that 16th hole was scary then. Um, and it was already, it was already wild the first year they played yeah, and there. And that was the first year they now, played there. So, yeah. And it was yeah. already a wild place. They had already picked their spot and it is iconic now that spot. Sure but yeah, I beat Hal Sutton that year, which was to me, he was my hero as a player in college and all that. He was a superstar. He was intimidating. He'd already won a major, you know, um, he was the next Nicholas and I, I clipped him there. And I ended up beating Curtis and Hal again in May that year. I That's eagled right. the last hole in Vegas to beat those guys. Oh. Um, <laughs> which was, you know, that when you beat those two dudes, you know, and you idolize them and you know that they're grizzled because Curtis was player of the year in 85 and leading the money list with him and Dennis Watson and Hal was the man. And then all of a sudden, I'm just this pooch that's only broken 70 for about five, four years, you know. <laughs> now I'm, I'm taking down Curtis in a play, you know, making Eagle in the last hole to beat Curtis and Hal. Holy cow. Yeah. That blew me away. That so one did. what was the attendance like that first time that uh, they had the tournament in Phoenix uh, at the at the stadium course? Uh, on Saturday, there was 108,000 there on Saturday. And then Amazing. Super Bowl Sunday was you know, 50, 60,000, something like that. But yeah, there was already enormous, enormous crowds. Hartford brought them in like that too, back in the day. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk, yes, they did. we'll talk about Hartford too. Uh, uh, but this, this particular tournament, largest attendance of any golf event on the planet. And uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with what Paul's talking about with the Coliseum, as it's now called the, the 16th hole par three, which is pretty much built like a stadium now, isn't it? It it's fantastic. I, I love the fact that they've created that environment. Um, I didn't like it this year as much or the year before it was so closed off that the public couldn't get in there. It was all, it was so corporate. Um, I don't know. You, I don't want to cut out the little man, you know, let him in there and see what the heck that's all about. Yeah. Remember when, uh, I think Vince Gill made a hole in one there to win a family, a house. There's been so <laughs> much history there. Tiger's hole in one was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's iconic place. They've created a heck of an environment. And I feel that as a spectator, it's probably uh, one of the most anticipated spots down the stretch of any regular tour event. Yeah. What's yeah. going to happen on 16? Well, well before they came to this venue uh, back in 1975, Johnny Miller won this event by 14 shots over Jerry Hurd. Of course, you remember that name. Uh, uh, Jerry Hurd was uh, was one of the guys hit by lightning at the Western Open back in 1975. That was the week after the uh, the U.S. Open was played at uh, at Medina that Lou Graham won. But uh, uh, I think that's the year Hale Irwin won that one. Bruce, did you play in that Western Open? I stood on the 14th tee and watched those guys oh, you were get close. zapped. You were close. I mean, that's. I was close. I thought they were all dead. Hit that lake right they there just, by you, didn't it? The lo- lake on the left hand side of that 14th hole. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the scorer and the kid carrying the banner around. I thought, oh my God, what's happened? You know, and that was 
that I think that incident was the one that really forced the tour into making sure that, you know, if there was any weather within, you know, eight or ten miles of us, get the hell off the golf course, you know. I mean, those boys suffered badly. All of them ended up with back problems. Yeah. Every yeah, one of yeah. them. Yeah, uh, Trevino got hit. Bobby. Jerry Heard, Bobby Nichols, uh, Arnold, right. and, All three Arnold and Tony Jacklin both had clubs knocked out of their hand because uh, they were it fairly was, It was scary. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the Las Vegas. Uh, you mentioned uh, later that year, the Panasonic Las Vegas Invitational, again by one over Hal Sutton. At this point, he's got to be, he's getting upset with you. <laughs> yeah, he said, uh, his quote in the paper was, he says, I didn't see it go in. I heard it go in because it hit the back of the hole so hard. It flew up like that high in the air. And it went. But one thing I'll never forget this. Uh, we, you know, all wooden drivers back then. And we were playing Vegas country club and it was racetrack fast. And uh, there's all these out of bounds on the right and left side of both fairways. And we got on the 12th tee. I Eagle 10. I shot 64 on Sunday yeah, to win yeah. by one Eagle 10 and Eagle 18. And, uh, I remember on 12, I was sniffing, but I really wasn't hitting it that confidently. I didn't feel. And I told my caddy, I said, uh, see those walls over there? He goes, yeah. I said, if I hit one over that wall right there, it's going to be taking a bad hop. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm not hitting a ball above that wall the rest of the day. <laughs> and it was one of those low walls. You can see right into the back of the houses. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, the flat homes. And those yeah. walls, you, they're knee high. And the rest of the day, I hit low bullets. So I got on 18, and I was going to hit a low bullet fade. And I was freaking out nervous. And I hit it, and I never saw it. I was like, uh-oh. My caddy said, I hit a high draw that went over the wall out of bounds and came back. And I hit eight iron to the green. Oh, my. <laughs> to the part no. hitting. If I hit the drive I wanted, it would have been a one iron off that tight yeah. grass. I hit a pop hook that I never laid eyes oh on, God. and we got up there, and I swear God hit eight iron. I've never told either one of them that either. <laughs> if I told Curtis that, can you imagine how hot he'd get if he if he knew that? <laughs> Curtis, baby. Sometimes you got to get a break. Well, that was a break. Think about wow. that. The yeah. last tee, I was going to hit a low cut, and I never saw the ball, and it was a pop draw that went. I hit eight iron, twenty five feet, and made it for eagle. Well, it sounds like those those low little bullets, that's the perfect shot for number one at Prestwick, if you've ever been there. Oh, Prestwick, that'd be perfect. Isn't that like a five iron and a sand wedge or something? Exactly, number exactly. One at yeah. Train train on yeah. the right, but the wall's a little higher than knee high. But still, I've always thought about just keeping something low and bumping it up against that wall. Well, yeah. you know, when you first get on tour and you play golf, you know, another guy, J.C. Sneed, I played a lot of golf with J.C., and he was a grump. And he, but he was golf smart, you know, he was just so wise yeah. when it came to equipment and how to set stuff up. And he taught me a lot. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I forgot even what I was going to say, but, uh, that'll make on. our blooper real. <laughs> Good. It's yeah. a blooper. <laughs> That's all right. Well, Vegas uh, uh, was the highest purse on tour when it was created back in 1983, and Fuzzy Fuzzy won that event. Uh, it was a pretty big, pretty big money back then, wasn't it? Yeah, and and then that just if you want to add this to your blooper reel, I remember what I was thinking now. But Snead really <laughs> asked me about how to hit a go-to shot, and when I got to Vegas, 
and those walls were a foot off the ground or whatever, and it's out of bounds. And I just said, this is my go-to shot. I'm going to go to it the rest of the day yeah. and shot 64. Yeah. And, uh, but it was that old school of thinking, wasn't it? You know, that, that you yeah. got, son, if you're on the 18th tee at Colonial with a one shot lead, what are you going to hit? Oh, I never thought about it. Well, you better have a go-to shot. I, I believe now their go-to shots are high. Yeah, they are. Most of them, I think. Their go-to shots to launch it in the air with a cut. Yep. I think that's a better go-to shot, to be honest with you, if you have it. Yeah, you can cr- control it on the ground a little better, I guess, right? Yep. Well, uh, uh, that was Tiger's first tournament win, too, back in uh, 1996. I think that's where he had his first win. Let's move on uh, to uh, your third win of the year, which was the Cannon Sammy Davis Jr. Greater Hartford Open at TPC at River Highlands. Uh, you'd mentioned that earlier, and we'll talk about what a what a great uh, event that is for the local community. But that was by one over Dan Forsman and Wayne Levy. It was. Um, I was in the last group that year with Langer again in '87, uh, and I remember, you know, what a big deal it was. I felt like to be able to beat that guy because he was so good. Uh, the big, I think what got Langer that day on the third hole there at Hartford is he airmailed the green and hit a lady on top of the head and mm-hmm. uh, right on the forehead. It made a lump. I swear it was so big. It cast a shadow on her head and it, it shook him up the rest of the day. Oh, boy. Um, and I made a nice putt to win. I made about a seven footer on the last hole to beat those guys. So yeah, I, I had a lot of respect for Wayne Levy as a player. And I always thought he was like one of the grittiest guys when he got in contention He's just so hard to beat. So I was real proud that I could give him some trouble there down the stretch. Year in, year out, that seems to be a player favorite, that uh, that tournament, what the community does to pull together to support that event. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, Hartford's kind of, it was run down when we were playing that tournament, and the area itself wasn't that easy for accommodations. But, boy, did they ever roll out the red carpet. And we had the big lobster bakes and all that stuff. It was right. fantastic. And Bruce, you uh, you had a close call there. You finished second to Billy Casper in, in uh, 1973 at that tournament. Yeah, Billy Casper again. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, was. You were the victim of one of his 56 wins. <laughs> yeah, I was the victim. Yes, sir, I sure was. <laughs> Next year, you headed back home to Bay Hill to grab the trophy too, huh? Well, I was PGA Player of the Year. I lost in '87. You see, I won the three, and then I lost the British. But I won the PGA Player of the Year, and it was a big deal for me, obviously. And um, I remember reading a golf magazine, and our local golf writer Jim Achenbach was writing for one of the golf magazines. It might have been called Golf. And uh, the big headline in this article is "Azinger a fluke," and uh, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. How there just was no satisfying or you know, there's always a burden of proof to me. Um, when I got on tour, my friends were like, this guy sucks. He can't play. And I kept my card because I wanted to prove him wrong. I could play. And then, well, he won, but he can't win again. And, and I won again. And uh, it just was always the chip on your shoulder mentality of thinking, I think, that always kind of kept me going. And when it was when I was a fluke after being that good, when I was in my brain thinking, well, that's it. Uh I don't know. And I had still had the Burt Yancey line in the back of my head. You got to make history. If you're going to make history, you got to win a major. So that was still in there. Mm. But yeah, in 88, I almost won the PGA that year. Um, 
but I did win Arnold's tournament and it was huge for me because I had been the counselor and I knew Arnold and Arnold loved it. And I had a big, I had a six shot lead on kite. Another guy that I just respected so much for me. So often it was who I would get to beat yeah. as much as when you win the event, that's great. But like, really I outdueled Tom kite on a Sunday. Who the, what the <laughs> heck? I just kept, couldn't, I couldn't believe that I outdueled Hal Sutton and Curtis, you know, the year before. And then I got to, go against kite and that really is how i started to look at things yeah well you won by five so it must have been a was it a fairly comfortable win coming in yeah i bogeyed 18 now nah, i drove it in the right rough i had a six shot lead drove it in the rough chipped out hit nine iron on and it was pretty cushy yeah and and, and uh kite won it the next year so he got over it i'm sure pretty quickly Oh, yeah, he was fine. And uh, you followed Payne's victory. Uh, he had won it the year before when he set the tournament record at 20 under. Yeah, that was ridiculous because we always thought Bay Hill was impossible. You know, it just seemed to be one of the most difficult courses, the longest course. Uh, it's not that way anymore. They 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 eat it up. Yeah. This was also a big win for Fuzzy Zeller back in 1985. You might recall he was just coming off the back surgery, wasn't sure if he'd ever play again at this level. And he won there, and boy, did that that do a lot for his psyche. Yeah. Fuzzy, there's another guy that he didn't miss a sweet spot very often. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle. Quiet away.